0: Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. In the, in the book of, uh, as we've been walking through this series about the pillars of our faith, we want to remember these things. In fact, we're going to see um, towards the end of the passage today, Paul's writing, he's like, dude, you got to talk about this stuff. You got to talk about it. And you got to talk about it over and over and over again. So we're wanting to remember these things that today we're talking about remembering the gospel. Appropriate because uh, we're celebrating communion today, but we would remember the good news. And here, I think, uh, as as we've done each week, trying to uh, Pack it into a, a very, very short phrase. The doctrine of the gospel goes something like this Through Jesus, God makes a family who receives forgiveness, freedom, and eternal life. Through Jesus, God makes a family who receives forgiveness, freedom, and eternal life. And so um, as we work our way, we've done Trinity and Father, Son, and Spirit, and now we're talking about the gospel. As we work our way through these doctrines, we want to be reminded um, of these really important truths. So here here we are in Titus chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another dude, Paul had a bad day right there. Like, dude, get some coffee or something. You going to be all right, Paul? Uh, let's just pause there though, uh, because um, the gospel is good news. That's, that is what the, the word means. Um, and and when, it, when we say that, it is an announcement. It's not advice. Advice is something you can take or you can leave. Hey, I got some good advice for you. And you're like, man, I don't know. Here's a stock tip. Eh, I'm not so sure. This is not that. This is not, hey, this is what you could do. This is what God, this is news. It's an announcement of what God has done. This is what he has done for us. Through Jesus, God makes a family who receive forgiveness, freedom, and eternal life. It's news, not advice. And so the reason though it's good news is because where we start is a pretty bad place. I don't know if you saw that in verse 3 or not, but it wasn't Paul just having a bad day. It really is descriptive of our situation apart from God. So let's talk about our condition. I just want to work our way through verse 3 again. What is our condition? We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and led astray. Let's just think about that for a second. There is a moral corruption that sits inside of us. Um, look at the words that he uses, Foolish, and some people think, um, especially uh, kind of more modern readers of the text, they think, "Oh, foolish! Foolish is like, oh, you dumb person, you dumb kid, you. I mean, don't be such a knucklehead." That is that is how we use the word typically, but that is not how the Bible uses the word. Fool has a moral connotation to it, so so this is a a moral word. It is it is packed with moral meaning. Foolishness and then disobedience. You see, there, um, for we were once foolish, disobedient, that, that we intentionally choose to live differently than what we know to be true and right, and then led astray. And so there's this internal immorality in us that's foolishness. There is this expressed immorality, that is disobedience, and then there's the external immorality of we are being led astray um, by uh, the devil and the forces of darkness that are there. All of that is 100% true, all of it, but the reality is there is moral corruption, and, and um, I say that because the cultural narrative, if you will, of our world—you see it in Disney princess songs—and let's just pause. Let me back. Let me back up here before we jump into that full on. Does anybody have a something in your life that, when you encounter it, you all of a sudden develop Tourette's to it? You're like, I don't know what to do with this. I can't stop you. Don't say that again. Maybe it's the, the misuse of their like there, there, there. You know, you, they, they mess that up. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, least favorites, is when they intend to say that they lose something, but they lose it instead. They just set it free. Hey, can they, can they, there's one extra O in there, like that kind of thing. You're like, nobody? Is that just me? <laughs> okay, thank you. There's a few of you who are like, no, don't, don't, I, I totally get you. As a pastor, here's one of the things. For me, that gives me that kind of reaction. When people in our culture, again, it shows up in conversations, it shows up in Disney Princess songs, and it shows up a hundred other places. Just follow your heart. Please don't do that. Please don't. I'm not making light of it. I'm not, I know genuinely as a pastor, I hear people saying that to other people or seeing people post that in in affirmation of other people. Here's the thing, that is terrible idea. It is terrible advice to give to someone else. And it is a terrible path to follow. Why? Jeremiah says it best, most cleanly. The heart is desperately sick and wicked. So to like launch into your own heart, I'm just going to follow my heart. I mean, it makes for a good rom-com or something, but listen, you are following a cancer-ridden organ. You don't want to do that. And the places that it leads ends up in all sorts of chaos for you and for those around you. There is moral corruption inside. This is our condition. Um, Foolish, disobedient, led astray. We are outside in, in this moment here because of this corruption. We are outside of God's will. We are separated from His pleasure and His plan. And furthermore, that separation will last into eternity unless it is dealt with. And furthermore, We will want it that way. We won't want to be separated from God right until the moment we see what that separation really means. So when we come and pray, church family, when we come and pray for people in our world who do not know Jesus, that's what's at stake. Separation from God for eternity when we step up into ministry and and declare the truth and the reality of who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus, when we step into that moment, we do so with that at stake. Separation from God for eternity. This is what we're talking about. So this, this is the big time. This is major league stuff. Our condition Keeps us separated from the corruption inside of us. Keeps us separated from God, and will last into eternity. And again, frankly, we want it that way. Right up until the moment we see it, and then we blame God for it. There's more corruption. And then look at the next phrase in verse three. There's also moral bondage. We are slaves. It says, "slaves to various passions and pleasures." We are enslaved and therefore incapable of liberating ourselves, freeing ourselves. Some people think, well, don't I have a free will? What they actually mean by that is, don't I have a free moral agency? And the answer to that is yes, yes, you do. Your choices are real and they matter. But when they talk about a free will, what they're actually saying is that my will is free to choose the good or the bad. And the reality is, is that your will consistently chooses what it sees to be most valuable. And our problem is our eyesight, we don't regularly choose the good. We regularly choose what we think is the good, and we don't see that very, very well. Uh, how do you know that? Jesus is great. In John 8, 32, this is probably a verse you know. Jesus said in John eight thirty two, you will know the truth, and the truth, everybody, will set you free. That's glory right there. Oh, yes. Give it to me. Two verses later in John eight thirty four. Don't you know that those who practice sin are slaves to sin? That, that kind of enslavement, that bondage, if you will, that corruption is, is inside of us. And so we, we continue in the patterns, and we continue not being able to see what's genuinely true and right and good and beautiful in front of us. Moral bondage. And lastly, because it it always does this. It always works its way out. Look at the last phrase of verse 3. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. There is carnage that follows. Moral carnage. It always works itself out. So malice, malice is sheer indifference to those who are around us. We see the people who are there, who have needs, who need to know um, this, that, or the other. And listen, um, uh, we we just don't care. Hatred is not... The opposite of love and indifference is, and that's where we are most loveless. We just malice and envy. Um, we are constantly trapped, enslaved, if you will, to comparison with others, and we carry around this big bag of discontent for our own self and the situation that we have find, that we find ourselves in. malice and envy. And because we're indifferent. And because we're constantly comparing and um, wishing ill towards others or wishing we had what they have or that they didn't have uh, what they had, what happens? What's the outcome of that? Hatred. Hated by others, hating one another. This is a relational outcome of this corruption, of this bondage, of this malice and envy kind of carnage that happens. It always works itself out. This is what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. This is what the Bible says is spiritual death. You were dead in your sins. This is, I mean, just look at it. There's no life there. It's why the Bible says it's spiritual death. You're dead in your sins. This is our condition. Verse 4. Can we just glory in this first word of verse 4? Like the conjunction. But. Can we just hold on to that? And say what that means is that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of your story. But. We were these things, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, that this, um, he he stepped in and he knew what he was getting into when he did. So, so God showed up. Anybody have this moment? Uh, a, one of the two parents goes out of town. Uh, this especially. This is just okay. This is Team Henderson stuff right here. When Mama leaves. And we have two days by ourselves in the house. There's no telling what might happen. And then Mama comes home, and she might think to herself, "I've been gone. I've been doing this hard thing. I've worked hard. I'm on the way home, and and I'm sure that they did great in taking care of things, and all is well when they get there. And then." through the front door. And it is none of those things at at my house. I don't know if this happens at yours. She left and she had no idea what she was coming back to. She went away and it was clean. She came back. Not so much. Anybody with me on this? Some people think this is God. God. God set the world in motion and then he steps in. He's like, holy smokes, what happened here? Why are there Cheerios right there? Did anybody pick up their socks at all? I had no idea it was this crazy. That's how we picture God stepping into the world, not the way that God came. Folks, he knew exactly what he was getting into. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He wasn't shocked when he came down. He knew exactly what he was getting into. And this is part of it. Um, When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He knew that we needed saving. Um, Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And that's, that's when God makes this grand achievement. When it goes from, this is your condition, but, but, but. I see you, I see what's going on, I see how chaotic it is, I see how messy it is, I see how detrimental it is, I see how devastating it is, I see the carnage that's falling out as a result of these things. But, I'm stepping in anyway, and I am doing so to demonstrate the incredible mercy that I have towards you. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Out of the generosity of who he is and out of the sheer like um, moral goodness of who he is, he looks down on the world that he made that has stepped into full rebellion against him and he says, I'm not going to let it be like this forever. I am bringing salvation. I am going to do something about it and I'm going to do it. Out of mercy. when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. How did he do that? He saved us, not because of works done by and righteousness, but according to mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He, he brings a new life. He gives new life. This is really important. Um, why? Because um, when it says the watching of regeneration, that, that's a life word right there. Um, that is, um, anybody a fan of like the the TV series Mash? Anybody in here? Like some of you are like, I've never even heard of that. You should go to TV Land or whatever it's on right now and just watch. I saw a couple of faces out there that you're like, no, I ain't doing that. I'm looking at who it was. Um, here's the thing. Listen. It, It was funny comedy, it was funny then, it's still funny today. There are some great life lessons in there, not the least of which, in one particular episode, Hawkeye, played by Alan Alda, has got a kid on the table, a soldier on the table, and the kid codes out. And so he's like, give me a scalpel, give me a rib spreader, and he starts working, and they're like, what are you doing? He's gone. And just on the, I mean, don't want to be too graphic, but he puts his hand inside his ribs, to the heart of the kid and start squeezing to make it happen until his body can catch up. What are you doing? I want him to live. What that patient needed in that moment is exactly what we need Before we know Jesus, we need a power from outside of ourselves to step into our world and grab a hold of our hearts and make it beat because we can't make it beat on our own. We need a new life given to us, a power from outside of us. The message of Christianity is not that bad people can wonderfully be good. The message of Christianity is that dead people can become alive. And yes, there should be morals. And yes, there should be goodness. And yes, there should be all this stuff that comes with it. Jesus didn't die on a cross and rise from the dead so that we could be more polite. He did it so that we could have life that's what's at stake. It is new life that is given. We, we miss this in a couple of different ways. Uh, one is that the, the kind of um, self-righteousness you see here, not because of in verse, uh, back in verse six, uh, excuse me, verse five, not uh, because of works done by us in righteousness, in righteousness, not by us. We didn't do these things, works done by us. Hey, uh, self-righteousness comes along and says something like, uh, God probably needs me on his team here. I bet he's glad that I put on Team God jersey today. Way to go, me. That, that kind of self-righteousness uh, is rebellion, couched as, as performance. The other way is to, it's not self-righteousness, it's unrighteousness. I don't need God. That's rebellion, um, couched as individuality. And what we find quickly on both fronts is that we're not better off without him. We, we can neither um, make it on our own nor make our own way to God. We need him to step into our world and give us new life. And that's exactly what he promises. But God, he did this by the washing of a generation, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Um, so now look at verse 7. This is God's achievement, not only mercy, not only new life, so that being justified by his grace, justified, that's a legal word, okay? Important legal word. It's standing before the judge, and the judge hammering the gavel down and says, you came in here guilty, you came in here owing, you came in here um, on the wrong side of the law, and I am declaring you not guilty because of the power that I have as the judge. Bam! Bam! There is a legal standing that is secured. Justified means you were guilty, and God says, I am declaring you not guilty. How? By His grace. We are justified by His grace. This is what He says by His grace. And what that means for, for many of us, so many of us who are in touch with that stinky part of our lives, that dark part of our lives that still got some odor to it, where you're like, oh man, oh my goodness, I don't know if this is ever going to not be a part of my life. What that means is God has already rendered the verdict on that. You are justified. You, are, you have legal standing and it is secure. He has declared you not Guilty. Because of his amazing grace. We stand before the judge, and he said, and I mean, Paul, when in a different part in Romans chapter 8, when he's writing about these things, he has this incredible, beautiful passage. And at the end of the passage, he says, man, what do we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? Who can stand against that? If the God of the universe, the judge of all things, has rendered his verdict, then who is to say otherwise? Who is to who is to condemn when we have been justified? Who is to say who continually say you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty? When God says, I declare you not guilty? And the answer is Nobody. Nobody. So if you struggle with your guilt and your shame, I just want to say to you that the God of the universe has rendered his verdict over your life and there is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. None. But it's more than that. It's not less, but it's more. Look at the next phrase. Being justified by his grace, there's the legal standing, we might become heirs. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. My guess is is that I'm not in your will. Is that fair? If I am, will you please let me know after the service? That'd be great. My guess is I'm not. Why? Because I'm not your family. Heirs are something that we get when we become part of the family. So legal standing is secure, but also the relational bond is secure. Not just justified by his grace, but we become heirs according to this incredible hope that he has given us. We've had, in the past year, I don't know, I may be missing or miscounting, but three or four adoptions. We get to go down and celebrate. We went down to the Galveston County Courthouse, I don't know, back late summer with one of the families. Four kids. The two The the two youngest were the ones being adopted. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where you roll up on family court. Everybody's just glad to be there. And there were like 35 or 40 of us. And the judge and the bailiff and everybody's like, this is a little overwhelming, but we're going to get this magic done. And so there was a moment where the judge rendered the verdict. (laughs) Done. The adoption is legally complete. But the little one who crawled up on dad is like, I love you, dad, didn't say, I love you, dad, because the judge banged the gavel. He did so because the father had reached out to him and called him his son. We were on Zoom for one of them. Beautiful moment with the parents, the judge and the parents. Tears everywhere. And um, the judge asked the, the kid who's old enough to kind of speak. He said, uh, do you have anything to say? Well, I love my mom and dad. The place was like, ah! Everybody went just... He didn't say that because the judge rendered a verdict. He said that because he was brought into a family it is important, it is critical that you understand that your legal standing before God is secured. You are justified by faith. There is nobody who can have claim over your life. The, the, the condemnation is indeed done away with. It's over. The judge has rendered his verdict. But you also need to know that the same judge who rendered his verdict has reached out his arms as a father. To draw you into His family, and that relational bond is just as secure. Both, not one or the other, both. So, what's the result of this? Here, the, here's the end result. Verse eight: This saying is trustworthy. All this stuff that he's been talking about here, okay? This thing is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. I just love that part where Paul's like, Titus, listen, I know you're pastoring these people and they're kind of hard to get along with. You just keep telling them, keep telling them, keep telling them, keep telling them. Why? Why is this important? Because the gospel is not the place that we start from and then move on from. The gospel is the well from which we continually draw. The more we draw from it, the more we're nourished by it. The more we insist on this in this particular setting, in small group settings, by the practices we do when we remember what Jesus has done for us through communion, through the confession of the things that we say together or the ways that we sing together, when we insist on these things, it's just refreshing. It just shapes us over time. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So let's just... What are the end results? Here's one. There is a transformed people. A people who have been absolutely ravished by the love of God and just soaked in, saturated in the good news of what Jesus has done. They are a transformed people. They live for different things. They speak about different things. They know that there are different realities in the world on which they can base their life. They don't have to live according to the stories being told in the culture. Why? Because they've been brought into a much better story. They witness in their lives, and their words. When Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, we looked at this last week. When Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, they will be witnesses. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. um, A power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. That's what we're talking about there. He has done this, and we get to tell that story of people who've been transformed. Secondly, there are good works that get unleashed in the world. I want um, uh, to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, there's the transformed people, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These works are rooted in the gospel, and when we have the opportunity, it's just unashamed in the demonstration of these things. We just unleash these on the world. God's work dealing with our moral corruption, demonstrating his mercy for us, uh, giving us new life, justifying us with legal standing before God and bringing us into his family. God's work then results in our good works. I I say that to say it's not because, boy, we get wrapped around the axle in some really bad ways. It's not a belief in Jesus and the gospel or good works. Nope, not that. It's not belief in the gospel and then when I get old enough, big enough, mature enough, strong enough, whatever enough, then good works. Nope, not that. It is belief in the gospel and good works. Whenever you see them in the Bible, they're together. In Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God as a result, not, excuse me, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Everybody can say amen to that. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And the very next verse is, For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that you should walk in them. Those two things always go together. C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity, as he's thinking about this, he says, which blade of the scissors do you need to make the cut? And the answer is both, both. Same here. I've been (laughs) rereading Lewis. And so uh, one of the most helpful things pastorally, I really appreciate this. As we unleash these good works in the world, uh, the question comes up, hey, What if I don't like the people that I'm supposed to be doing some good works to? Anybody? They're not my favorite, okay? I mean, that's just being honest. What do you do if that's the case? Lewis has this great little pastoral moment. He goes, Just start acting like you like them. And pretty soon, you'll find that you have some affection for them. You'll come around like you. You will. Start treating them like they are your neighbor and then you will find that you love the person that you made a neighbor of. This is how God lets us participate in seeing his kingdom come and seeing good works unleashed in the world. Um, last thing here, just of note. Uh, The very last sentence of uh, verse 8. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Not, Not some people. They're just profitable for people. There is a kind of moral and cultural flourishing that happens as a result. When we, the people of God... Um, are rescued, saved from our condition out of all the, the corruption that is within us and the ways that it gets expressed. When we are saved by His mercy um, and according to His incredible new life that He has given us, legal standing before God, relational security with God. When this stuff happens and things begin to tumble out, there is a kind of moral and cultural flourishing that happens. These good works, they're profitable for people. Now, i just give you, let's just... Some macro examples here. How many hospitals can we name that either start with saint or are tied to a religious denomination? A ton, yeah? A bunch. A lot of them who are doing incredible work. How many universities, whether they have it today or not, how many universities have in their charter, in not, not may not be expressed today, but have in their charter that they're doing this because they want, they want the kind of flourishing that comes when people live in and believe and live according to the gospel. A ton. Whether or not it's in part of theirs, now, yeah, a, a ton. How many social movements that have shaped cultures have come because the gospel has taken root. Civil rights movement in our country in the 60s. Um, William Wilberforce and others uh, in, in England, we could keep going and just on and on and on and on with these. That's macro level though. Here's the thing. Um, the kind of moral and cultural flourishing, the, the good works that get done are always local first. I mean, you may think to yourself, that's fine, thank you for all of those things. I don't have it in me to create a hospital. Me neither. But I do have it in me to check on my neighbor. And that's where things like this start. I, I do have it in me to, to make a phone call or to drop something off and do good for somebody or to step out and help someone even if I don't necessarily feel like it. All of these good works are local first. They are local, relational, right here. Jesus said it this way. You take a mustard seed, smallest, little, bitty thing. And you stick that seed... In the ground, given enough time, it becomes a plant that the birds of the air find shade under. That little bitty thing becomes this grand thing. The stuff that we're getting, the the opportunities that are before us, they may develop into something amazing, huge, but they all start with the person who's right in front of us. It's your neighbor, it's your friend, it's your coworker, it's your church family. The witness is yours to portray. It is God's work that leads us to good works. And so, so before we step out of here, we're just going to remind ourselves of what God has done for us we're going to remind ourselves that Jesus has had mercy on us as we celebrate communion. So if you need to fold your stuff up, set it to the side, however you need to do that, take just a moment, settle yourself in. Um, I ask the deacons, if you're going to serve today, would you please go ahead and make your way forward? Thank you for that. As we said earlier, anybody who's a follower of Jesus is welcome. Uh, to participate in this uh, they will pass the elements to you and you can just pick up the two cups that are stacked there hold on to them we'll take them together um, as a symbol of unity the reason we do this on the first sunday of every month is to remind ourselves of the work that god has done for us we, we remind ourselves that the body of christ was broken that little wafer that you have it's a symbol because the, Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, the night before He went to the cross, He um, was with His followers in a room like us, and He took bread and He broke it. And he passed it around. And he said, "This is My body, which is broken for you, folks." The only way that we personally, that our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our office, it's whatever it may be, the only way that those people experience wholeness is through the brokenness of Jesus. And then he took a cup and he passed it around and he said, listen, this is the blood of new covenant. It is my blood that is shed for you. You don't have to go to a special place at a special time um, with a special animal to try to make things right. I'm doing it for you. It's not my work that makes God work. It's God's work that makes my life work. There's forgiveness today no matter what your status is, no matter what your sin is, that there's forgiveness today because of what Jesus has done. So let's pray and then we'll celebrate together. Uh, Father, thank you for the realities of what we're about, what we've talked about, what we've sung about, and what we're about to participate in. I pray that as we remember these things, that it will be very fresh for us, real for us, honoring to you. We give you all of this now. In Christ's name, amen and amen.